This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats, Life Beats. with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. Assalamu alaikum, hello Allah, and welcome to Life Beats with me, Sally Musa. If you don't think that one person can make a difference and change the world, then you haven't met Dr. Jane Goodall. The definition of a living legend, she fought every obstacle almost 60 years ago when she went as a young woman with nothing but an indomitable spirit to live amongst and study the chimpanzees of Tanzania. What she learned there redefined forever the relationship between animals and humans. She discovered that chimps had distinct personalities, minds and emotions, lasting family relationships and could even engage in primitive and brutal warfare. Hear her story next as she talks overcoming all odds to realize her dreams and revolutionize science, what she thinks our biggest challenges are and how we can overcome them. That special interview is next on Life Beats on Pulse95. This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats, Life Beats. with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. In 1950s post-war England, a young Jane Goodall had dreams of going to Africa to live amongst animals. The idea excited her so much that she often jokes that she was upset when Tarzan married the wrong Jane. In 1960, Jane realised her childhood dream and finally got her chance to venture to Africa to study forest chimpanzees. Her endless patience and dedication led to the groundbreaking discovery that chimps knew how to fashion and use tools, forcing the global scientific community to revise long-held beliefs about what these animals were capable of. Her work opened up new areas of research and in 1977 led to the establishment of the Jane Goodall Institute, a global leader in the effort to protect chimpanzees and their habitats, as well as developing innovative community-centred conservation programs in Africa. But her impact is not just academic. Dr. Goodall's passion spread globally when she helped people all over the world realize that everything we do is interconnected. With that as a central driving force, the Roots and Shoots Environmental and Humanitarian Program launched a global community in over 100 countries, including the UAE, where young people from kindergarten to university were empowered to use their ideas and voices to make a difference to some of our biggest challenges worldwide. Now at 84 and as unstoppable as ever, Dr. Goodall travels 300 days a year inspiring people to make a difference in their local communities and around the world. As she arrived here in the UAE on her latest visit, I sat down with her to ask her where her love for animals started and who supported her in her impossible dream. Well, it started when I was born. I loved animals and by the time I was 10, you know, when I grew up, there was no TV. It was just radio. Books, 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 books. We couldn't afford new books, and I don't think in the war they made them for children. And then I found this little second-hand bookshop, and in it I found Tarzan of the Apes. And when I was 10, I decided I'm going to grow up, go to Africa, live with wild animals, not chimps necessarily, 
fact, they never crossed my mind. They were too exotic and nobody knew anything about them, any wild animals, and write books. And everybody laughed at me. How would I do that? We didn't have money. I was a girl, except mum. She said, if you really want something, you have to work really hard, take advantage of all opportunity, but don't give up. So left school, no money for university, to get a job doing boring old shorthand and typing. Opportunity when a friend invited me to Kenya and earned the money for the passage by boat. Planes weren't very frequent in those days and very expensive, so by boat. And uh, I was 23, very young, 23 today, would be more like a 17-year-old. We were naive back then, you know, just after the war. Things were very different. And I uh, worked as a waitress to earn the fare. Out there, I was lucky enough to hear about and then meet Dr. Lewis Leakey. And he'd been looking for somebody to study chimps. So I think he was impressed how much I knew. And anyhow, that's how it began. It's just, it's incredible though, you know, when we think about it at that time, this is the, the late 50s, women were expected to get married, mm. have children, be mm. a good housewife. Mm-hmm. But somehow you thought that you really could do this and you say your mum played a pivotal role. So tell us more about that. Well, I mean, I didn't really think about it. It was just what I wanted to do. Honestly, it's almost as though I was born with a mission and all I had to do was make the right choices at the right moments. And it's led me, you know, first of all, to Africa, then to the chimpanzees. Uh, Leakey made me go and get a PhD at Cambridge because I hadn't been to college. You hadn't done any tertiary education. And no. so you would just went straight to PhD. How did you do that and what was that like? Leakey did it. He got people to vouch for me, purge their souls. <laughs> and uh, when I got there, I was told I'd done my study all wrong. Shouldn't have given the chimps names scientific to give them numbers couldn't talk about their personalities their minds or their emotions because those were unique to us but fortunately when I was a child I had a teacher who taught me that at least in this respect these these uh, erudite professors were wrong and that was my dog Rusty I mean you can't can't share your life in a meaningful way with any animal and not know that of course they have personalities, minds and emotions. Of course they can feel happy or sad. You and it's mean that? taken, it, it, because the chimps are so like us biologically, as well as behaviorally. So they kiss, embrace, hold hands, have family bonds, use and make tools, uh, even make war, but also show love and compassion. So because of all those similarities, finally science had to accept that we humans are not separate from the rest of the animal kingdom. And you know, gradually science has changed. So today a student can study animal emotions. I couldn't have studied it because they didn't exist. So the chimps and me, because I'm obstinate and because I had the right mother, and she taught me, you know, if somebody disagrees with me, number one, listen to them. Maybe they've got a point that you haven't thought about. But if you still feel you're at least writer than they are, then you must have the courage of your conviction. And that's a lesson that I share around the world, along with her message to me that, especially to girls in disadvantaged communities, if you really want it, 
work hard and take advantage of opportunity. It's a very powerful message. Yes. But take us back to that first time when you spent time amongst the chimps, amongst the animals in Africa, and your first impressions. Well, my first impressions were of backsides disappearing into the vegetation. They were they're very conservative. Yeah. We'd never seen a white ape before, and uh, they ran away. I knew with time that I could get their trust, but there was only money for six months. And it took a long time for them to kind of come close to you, for them to to really, for you to really be able to observe them and, and to be in their world, didn't it? A long time. I mean, I was watching them through binoculars. Yeah. But then fortunately, one of them began to lose his fear. They called him David Greybeard. And in a way, it was thanks to him. He introduced me it's almost though he introduced me to the others because if he was in a group that was ready to run, he would just sit calmly. You know, by that time he'd been into my camp and pinched bananas. And um, so the others, I think, started to think, well, she obviously isn't so scary after all. Coming up next, Dr. Jane Goodall describes the first magical encounter with chimpanzee David Greybeard, which led to the first history-making discovery. That's next on Life Beats on Pulse 95. This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats, Life Beats. with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. 95. I'm in conversation with legendary scientist Dr. Jane Goodall. Here she shares her first magical encounter with the chimpanzee David Greybeard that led to the groundbreaking discovery which changed our understanding of animals forever. First amazing interaction was when he actually took a banana from my hand. Out in the wild he allowed me to follow him and one day I thought I'd lost him found him sitting, looking back, almost as though he was waiting for me. And I sat near him, and there was a ripe red palm nut on the ground, so I held it out to him on my palm, and he turned away, and I put my hand closer. He turned around, he looked directly in my eyes, reached out and took and dropped the nut, but gently squeezed my fingers, which is how chimps reassure each other. So that in that moment, We were communicating in a way that must predate human language. A shared way of communication with gestures. And we understood it. I mean, he knew that I meant well, and I knew that he understood that, but he didn't want the nut. It was probably the most amazing moment, and I think it was that moment where I made a commitment to do what I could to help chimps. He was also the one who showed you that the chimps actually could use tools. and make tools. Yeah, tell us about that. It was before I got close to David, but he wasn't running, so I could watch through binoculars. And I saw him break off grass stems, use them to fish termites uh, from a termite mound, uh, pushing down the hole, gently pulling it out. The termites were biting on with their mandibles, protecting the nest, actually and uh, he was eating them and then he was picking leafy twigs and to make a tool he had to pull the leaves off and the side twigs and at that time it was thought that humans and only humans used and made tools and that was a life-changing observation because that 
enabled Leakey to approach National Geographic. And not only did they agree to provide funding, but they sent out a photographer filmmaker, Hugo van Lauwijk, and it was his early photos and film that took the story of Jane and the Chimps into living rooms around the world. Yeah, we, we saw the film being Jane. released, Jane, last year. It's exquisite. It's all of that film from Hugo, yeah. who later became your husband as yes. well. And um, father of my son. And father of your son, of course, but uh, just incredible footage. It's amazing. It was played on the plane I came out on <laughs> yesterday. I didn't know that, but somebody came up and said, I just saw your movie. <laughs> <laughs> came up to you on the plane and yes. said, oh my gosh, I just saw you there. Oh, That's there were three flight attendants wanting photos with me. Oh, Two people came up afterwards. I don't blame them. Oh my goodness. You know, these are the moments. How? Tell me about how that discovery, yes, it, it brought in National Geographic, um, it brought in Hugo, but how did that particular discovery change the way that we thought about animals? It had a huge impact impact? Well, because it was thought that only humans used and made tools. According to Leakey, we were defined as man the tool maker, so we have to redefine man, redefine tool, or accept chimps as humans. Mm. So of course the scientific community were up in arms. This young girl, she hasn't been to college, why should we believe anything she says? One of them said she must have taught them. That would have been clever. <laughs> since they couldn't, I couldn't oh get gosh. close to them. Would have been very clever to teach them. It's unbelievable. <laughs> but, uh, you know, d tell us a bit more about, you know, the other chimps and, and what you learned from them in terms of how close really they are to us as human beings. Well, biologically, we share 98.6% of our DNA and the immune system and composition of blood and anatomy of brain. But then in the behavior, the gestures of communication, kissing, embracing, holding hands, patting one another, begging palm up, swaggering, shaking the fist, uh, throwing rocks as weapons, as well as using different kinds of objects as tools. They even have a kind of primitive warfare. Uh, they actually had a civil war. You witnessed a yes, civil war between them. I did. It was terrible. This was much later on in the study. Yeah. And it was particularly bad because the males of the larger group were killing individuals that they used to travel and feed and nest and groom with. It was very, very uh, horrible to watch. That so, sounds so much like humans. But they are so much like humans. Yeah. But equally they can show love, compassion and altruism. So a little infant who's lost his mother Providing he or she is over three, because up to three, they depend on the mother's milk. It's a very long childhood, but after that, they can just about survive, and an unrelated male may adopt them. And that's very, you know, it keeps him back from his struggle to attain a higher position in the hierarchy, because mm. now he's got a little baby mm. to look after. Mm. Mm. But they've had their lives saved in that way. I know that um, one of your favourite um, relationships that you observed as well is between Flo and Flo Fifi. and Flint and Fifi. And Fifi. Yeah, yes. and Flint. T tell us more about that, what, what that was like and what you learned there. Well, what Flo taught me is uh, the importance of the kind of mother. So in Jim's society, there's good and bad mothers. 
mostly not bad, but less good. <laughs> and the good mothers are protective, but not overprotective. They're affectionate, playful, but above all supportive. And it's looking back over 60 years, the offspring of the supportive mothers do better. The females are better mothers, probably raise more kids, and the males get a higher rank in this male hierarchy and probably sire more infants. So there's this huge competition between males. Some are really motivated to climb high up. Some, as adolescents, will fight a higher ranking, get wounded, give up, that's it. And there's two kinds of ways of getting to the top. One is sheer aggression and strength. The other is using your intelligence, forming allies. And then I guess there's a third way, and that is just persistence. Again and again and again, disrupting groups of older males grooming each other. Until in the end, I think they say, oh, for pity's sake, let him get to the top. We don't care anymore. <laughs> it's just incredible. When you talk about it, it's as if competitions and rivalries, you know, that the way that they happen between men. Yeah, well, look at the posturing and um, aggressive stance and bristling and scowling that the adult male chimps do, standing upright and swaggering at each other and bristling and yelling, just like some male politicians. Mm -hmm. I don't even need to mention a name, do I? No, you don't. I think we get the picture very clearly. Um, but coming back to, to Flo and, and Fifi and Flint and the way that chimps mother their offspring, tell us a, a few of the interesting details that you found in that relationship. Coming up next, Dr. Jane talks about the incredible family bonds of chimpanzees that are so like humans between mother and child at the moment when she realised that she had to be the voice for voiceless animals. More next on Life Beats on Pulse95. This is Pulse95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats. Life Beats with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. 95. Welcome back to Life Beats and my special conversation with Dr. Jane Goodall, who revolutionized science with her observations of chimps in Tanzania back in the 1960s. One of the things that she observed was the way their family bonds were so much like those of humans. She also tells me about the moment when she realized she now had to become an environmental advocate. Coming back to, to Flo and, and Fifi and Flint and the way that chimps mother their offspring, tell us a, a few of the interesting details that you found in that relationship. Well, I think, uh, one, it draws importance to the fact that chimps like us have a long childhood. Mm. And it's clearly important because they have a lot to learn. Mm. You know, they're not born instinctively knowing how to behave. There are different cultures and the young ones learn by observing. Our kids learn by going to school. It's the same sort of thing. It takes time. But it was clear that during this long childhood, the bonds between mother and child get stronger. There's Flo and Fifi. And then little Flint comes along. And you see gradually the bond between Fifi and Flint getting stronger. And also uh, Fifi had older brothers. So they became part of this very, very close family relationships with mum between brothers and sisters, mm -hmm. which can sometimes last through life. But sometimes younger brothers will try to dominate older brothers. Mm. And it becomes rather unpleasant. 
You talk about going in there as a scientist, but coming out as an activist. I went in as somebody who wanted to write books. I was made to get the PhD. I got the PhD. It was a big conference I went to. By then, I was a scientist. I had my PhD. I'd written papers, which, by the way, I totally enjoy. I love the way I was taught to think in a scientific way. Um, so I went to this conference as a scientist with the, the most perfect life I could ever have imagined. Out in the field, out in the rainforest every day, being with the chimps. I had a research station by then, talking to the students. Um, it was perfect. Doing a bit of teaching in between in uh, Stanford in America. And at that conference, we had all the chimp people. By then, there were about seven different research sites across Africa. And everywhere forests were going, everywhere chimp numbers were dropping. Secretly filmed footage in medical research labs. So I came out of that four day conference as an activist without making a conscious decision. It's just, I, this is what I have to do now. You realized that you had to have, give your voice mm. for those who didn't have one. Yes. And so what <coughs> changed after that when you decided something has to be done? What had to be done, in your opinion? What did you do? Well, I didn't know what to do. That's the funny thing. But um, first thing I thought, well, I need to learn more because I don't think you can speak authoritatively about something unless you have hands. So I got a bit of money to go to six of the African countries where there were chimps. And I learned not only about the plight of the chimps, but also the plight of so many Africans living in and around chimp habitat, the poverty, the lack of good health and education, often ethnic violence. And when I flew over Gombe, it had been part of what we call the equatorial forest belt, stretching right from East Africa to the West African coast. And when I flew over in 1990, I looked on a tiny island of forest. It's only 35 square kilometers. It's the smallest national park in Tanzania. And it was surrounded by completely bare hills. More people than the land could afford to support too poor to buy food from elsewhere, struggling to survive, terrible erosion because it's very steep and they cut the trees down in their desperate effort to grow food or make charcoal. And that's when it hit me, if we don't help these people, we can't save the chimps. And so that began the Jane Goodall Institute's program, Takari, we call it Take Care Takari, um, which is now in seven different African countries, hugely successful, very holistic. And I think what was important, which nobody else had done before, this was 1994, not a group of arrogant white people going into a poor African village and telling them what we were going to do to improve their lives. A team of local Tanzanians going and listening and asking, what can we do to make your lives better? And starting how they wanted. So right from the beginning, they've been involved. And now we've got volunteers from the villagers who learn how to monitor the health of the forest. Uh, we got our youth program Roots and Shoots in the schools. They understand the value of preserving the forest, not just for the chimps, but for their own future. Clean water, clean air, protecting the slopes from erosion. Mm. So what began around Gombe with 12 villagers around the borders 
It's now in Tanzania, it's uh, 72 villages. It's a huge area. We've gone right throughout the range of the remaining chimps in Tanzania, through every single village, and it's incredibly successful. It's just uh, amazing how Roots and Shoots came about, and Roots and Shoots does so many different things in so many different places around the world. You've, you are uh, covering uh, 100 countries, I believe. There's nearly 80. The numbers change because, you know, we start in a country because there's a, a, a passionate teacher mm-hmm. or parent even, doesn't matter, and then they move. Mm. You know, although the program isn't then active, I know that it's impacted all the people who went through it while it was active. So we call these the alumni. And you know, now, because it began in 91, in some countries you find, like Tanzania, the Minister for Wildlife was in Roots and Shoots. The Minister for Environment in DRC was in Roots and Shoots. And when I go to China, there are people coming up saying, of course I care about the environment. I was in your Roots and Shoots program in primary school. And it, it does a lot of work with young people in schools. It's all from kindergarten through university. Yeah. And all they levels. get to choose. We don't tell them, but it's three projects they have to choose. We can advise them, suggest, but one to help people, one to help animals, one to help the environment, or one big program involving all three because it's all interrelated. Tell me about keeping that up and keeping up the um, the interest of young people now and the passion of young people to want to make a difference. Coming up next, Dr. Jane Goodall talks about how we can continue to inspire new generations to make a difference. That's next on Life Beats on Pulse 95. This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats, Life Beats. with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. 95. Welcome back to Life Beats with me, Sally Musa, and my interview with Dr. Jane Goodall from her visit to the UAE. Dr. Goodall has inspired generations of scientists and activists for the environment worldwide. Here I ask her how we can continue inspiring more, what her legacy is, and what a difference each one of us can make. Tell me about keeping that up and keeping up the um, the interest of young people now and the passion of young people to want to make a difference because it must be quite a mammoth task to to keep that going, keep the interest going and to make sure that it continues to grow. How do you do it? Well, you find, first of all, uh, there's a whole army of people out there. So in each country, the program doesn't start unless somebody of the country is passionate. They develop it there. So it develops, there are different cultures and it has to be sensitive. And because it starts grassroots in that country, then it develops into the cultural, religious, whatever, Mm. of that country. You find in some countries like Africa, India, a lot of Asian countries, the young people are passionate for this. They see what's happening to the world. Awareness is growing as to what we've done to the planet. Mm. And like this huge passion about oil palm plantations that are destroying the the old growth forest, destroying the home of the orangutans, and other animals spreading now from Asia to Africa and even to Latin America. Huge concern among youth for plastic, huge concern about so many ways that we're releasing all these emissions, the climate change, 
so many different ways that waste is happening. Um, waste, waste, waste. Yeah, in so many different ways. But sometimes that kind of awareness and those kind of campaigns, they're counteracted by some world leaders who oh, yes, they will are. deny climate change, and for example. We, um, we can't fight them per se, but what we can do is to grow the young people who care, who are passionate, who understand, who eventually will grow up and take over those top positions. Mm. It's the goal to strive for. Here in the UAE, the UAE has a special place in your heart as well. Well, you know, when I came here, there was no roots and shoots, and I just came to give this lecture to the Crown Prince. And so that's where the interest here began in helping to grow roots and shoots. And it hasn't been easy. There were a lot of young children who thought that picking up other people's trash was awful and disgusting. But, you know, once they get into it, they understand they become like everybody else. It changes mentalities, yes. it changes minds. The, the great thing about Roots and Shoots is that young people from different cultures and countries can interact mostly through the internet. But and through the program, because they get to see what others are doing all yes. over the world yes, as well. they do. That's really important too, yep. because it can feel like very lonely work at times mm. if you're working, you know, whether it's alone or with your school or whatever. But actually, when you connect with others, it can inspire even more action because then you realize this. Yep. Global, And I think a lot of people, including adults, are aware what's going on, but they do nothing because they feel helpless. And so once you understand that if you just do your little bit and then know that there's other people doing their little bit, the cumulative effect of millions of people saving water, millions of people thinking about what they buy, where it came from, did it harm the environment, was it cruel to animals, is it cheap because of child slave labour? Once you get people asking those questions and making ethical decisions. Business will change because business grows because people buy the product. If people stop buying the product, sometimes poor people can't afford to think like that. They have to buy the cheapest. And that's why alleviating poverty is a huge goal. Alleviating poverty, changing the way we think our unsustainable lifestyle is harder. But there again, if young children are affecting the way their parents behave. Mm. And then we have to do something about population growth. Think about it, talk about it. It's not sensible to think we can have unlimited economic development on a planet with finite natural resources. Now, I want to know what your message would be to young people and to everyone who's listening about, you know, what feels like a huge, huge mission in terms of changing the world. What's your approach? What would be your message? Well, I think that the most important message for everybody is that you matter. You have a role to play, and if you haven't discovered it. But the most important thing, what you do every day makes a difference. And you get to choose what sort of difference you're going to make. That is the most important message. Every day, you have a chance to make a difference, and you get a choice. What sort of difference will I make? Well, if you could do it almost 60 years ago against what seemed like all odds, then whoever hears your story can definitely take that to heart. I can't begin to tell you how many people have come up to me and said, Jane, I want to thank you because you taught me. Because you did it, I can do it too. I wish my mother was alive to hear that because that was her message to me, which I now share, particularly to disadvantaged communities. 
It's so powerful, so powerful. I can feel your mother right now here with us. I'm sure she is. Yeah. Hi, Mom. <laughs> your legacy now, you're just, you're not stopping. You're still traveling. You're still talking. You're still out there bringing that amazing message to people. So what do you want your legacy now to be? Well, I want to be remembered for two things. One, helping people understand animals are not just things, they're sentient beings, and we treat them in ways that are abominable and disgusting. And gradually that has to be changed. And secondly, starting Roots and Shoots. We have 34 Jane Goodall Institutes, and Roots and Shoots is our environmental humanitarian education program. You know, what bothers me is when I'm not here, how many of those programs will fade away because or they run out of funding or something like that. So my goal now is to build up an endowment. And we're just about to launch the Jane Goodall Legacy Foundation, which is to make an endowment, not to provide money for the different programs, but to help them out if they get in a muddle or to start some other really important, meaningful new program. That's what it's for. What's the biggest thing that people could change today that would make a big difference, do you think? Eating less or no meat. It's not just the cruelty to the animals, which is, well, I can't begin to tell you. You've probably never been into one of these places. If you did, you'd have nightmares for weeks. But it's also the billions of animals now kept in these factory farms have to be fed. That means destroying huge areas of habitat to grow the grain. It means using masses of fossil fuel to take the grain to the animals, the animals to the abattoir the meat to the table. Lots of water wasted, changing vegetable to animal protein. Um, animals, particularly cows, when they digest, they produce gas. We all do. It's methane. It's an even more virulent greenhouse gas than CO2. And a lot of it is due to animal agriculture. Uh, statistics have shown. And finally, people don't care about animals. They don't care about the environment. They may care about their own health. So the antibiotics used to keep the animals alive, not just when they're sick, just routinely. So the bacteria are building up resistance and people are dying from a scratch on a finger because of resistance to the antibiotics. It's, it's one thing, but actually there's so much around it. Yes, and that, that does, you know, it's becoming more and more out in the open now that one thing you can do is to eat less meat. Well, I, I haven't, you know, when I first read about factory farms, which I had no idea existed, it was in the early 70s, late 60s, something like that. The next time I looked at a piece of meat on my plate, I thought, goodness, this symbolizes fear, pain, death and you couldn't do it anymore no wow are you vegan or vegetarian or i'm vegan whenever i can possibly be okay i've been vegetarian for ages when i'm at home i'm vegan traveling it's difficult and you know i do have to keep alive so i i apologize to the poor creature that's been tortured if i eat cheese because the way they treat the dairy cattle is ugh. just one last question I guess what drives you well I'm a very obstinate person you know I have grandchildren I look at the world and think we've just got to do something about this I love nature I love the forests 
And something we can do right now to help climate change is to protect our forests and restore our forests. And so what drives me is I've got to use the gifts I was given. Uh, one is a pretty amazingly healthy body, but the other is a gift of communication. So I've got to use that as long as I can to help people understand that they too can make a difference. And she is absolutely unstoppable. When we talk about inspirational people, very few are like Dr. Jane Goodall. She is still as passionate and as committed as ever. She was actually unwell and was losing her voice while she was here giving talks. But she, she was so committed to speaking to the hundreds of people who came out to see her. Session after sold out session. One person from the audience came and asked her afterwards where she's based. And without missing a beat, she said, aeroplanes. She's constantly traveling, getting the message out there that one person can change the world. She did it and every single one of us has the power to do it too. So many ways to be part of the movement, particularly encouraging young people with roots and shoots. That's it for us today on Life Beats. Have a great weekend and see you back here Sunday morning. This is Pulse 95. Tune in live every weekday from 10am.